0: the Golf Barons podcast, Tenuous Links, a golf pun we're not only incredibly proud of, but one we're also sure to emulate. Let us
1: curing through bloviated opinions on all things golf, some outrageous innovation ideas to speed up the game, a few laughs, and an historical retelling of an iconic golf moment.
0: Time to add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons, welcome to another episode of Tenuous Links, the Golf Barons Golf Podcast where we take off in a number of directions and try and live up to our name. Now this week we've given Shooter the week off, we've given Kipper the week off, which is good for pronunciation, we've given Davman the week off, but we have introduced a very very special guest for today. With us is Mike Cocking from the design firm of OCM. Michael Cocking, welcome on board.
1: Thanks Phil, nice to be here
0: as I say, we'll we'll work that out as we go, how much you're going to enjoy this or whether or not you'll never come back. But Michael, what I wanted to start with is a little bit of a background because I'm not a big one for research and this is all about you. Why golf? Do you want to just give us a bit of a background on your journey and then we'll get into the normal traditional tenuous links swing yeah, of things? Yes,
1: yeah, absolutely. So my parents sort of tried to play when I was really little, I think just as a hobby. Maybe they thought that You know, my sister and I would get interested and we we didn't really like it that much. We were only really young. And so the golf clubs were sort of put under the house to be, you know, never to be seen again. And then I I remember watching the 1988 US Open before school. So I was 12 and I'd never really watched golf. It was the fourth round. I was at my grandparents' house because they used to take me to school. And so I'd get like an hour of TV. And just with the timing, it just happened to be on. And Faldo was going down the stretch with Curtis Strange. I was 12, so I thought, and Harrison Ford was big, I thought (laughs) Faldo looked like Harrison Ford. (laughs) So I was kind of pulling for him. And um, they tied. And then the next day I did the same thing and sure enough the golf was on. So I was kind of hooked. Like I thought, this is fantastic. And then from there I kind of discovered the golf clubs under the house we had a little bit of land at the back of our house, so I kind of just started swinging the golf club and trying to hit shots, and then from there my dad took me to the driving range and we kind of started together really. so he he was interested enough as well, and then we kind of both got hooked. So from there that was kind of how I got into golf and kind of progressed through from you know just public golf courses and as I got better kind of advanced to to better and better golf courses.
0: From a design point of view, though. Just on the the playing thing, I don't want you – this is your opportunity to brag a little because (laughs) because we don't want to just be dismissive of the fact that you then played a little and got a little bit better. You you did get a little bit better. Now, at one stage, uh, you managed to get yourself on TV a little bit during a tournament in Melbourne.
1: I did. Yeah, look, I was was decent. I I was never the best, but I was in the Victorian – I was in the VIS, so the Institute of Sport, after I went to university, so I was in there with a, with a really good group of guys. Um, Aaron Badley was in there then, and Cam Percy and Brad Lamb and John Sutherland, Andrew Webster, Mark Leishman, uh, Fraser. So it was a good group of guys. I won the Victorian Amateur in two thousand, and then the next year I played the Masters. So I played the Australian Masters when it was still a going concern, um, <laughs> and it was a good event <laughs> still. And I was yeah, I was leading after the first round. So I was at sixty five. And, then I, and I actually, I continued on. I played well. I had a bad second round from memory, but I came uh, fifth, I think, tied for fifth as an amateur. So that as an
0: amateur. That's not bad.
1: That was good. So
0: That's what I wanted to hear. I've just yeah, yeah, got to give you yourself go. a chance yeah. to brag know, and say, anyway, there was uh, that but, time that I came fifth yeah. as an amateur in the Australian Masters <laughs> when it was actually a really, really good event, the strong fifth. <laughs> event. event.
1: Yeah. Well, it was kind of, I guess it was, it was before, amateurs tended not to do that in professional events very often. It was kind of rare. I remember Andrew Buckle and Steve Bowditch did really well in the Australian Open about the same time. And so those, it, yeah, it just wasn't that common, whereas now you see guys are so good at such an early age. I mean, you see guys winning. I mean, Shane Lowry won an event as an amateur. Um, it's, it's not uncommon at all now to see guys do really well. But oh, And bads. And bads. Yeah, and,
0: and 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 beds, beds, uh, yeah locally, of course,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, man, it was unheard of, but so design yeah so design so then um i mean this is all pre-internet you've got to remember too so like i was not that i'm that old but the internet was only just starting so it, it was all the kind of the information you found out about good golf courses was pretty much through books and magazines i was i didn't really know what i was going to do i was good at maths and science to be honest i didn't think you could be a golf course designer it was one of those professions that's kind of like shrouded in mystery. You know, how do you, how do you become a golf course designer?
0: Well, that's one of my questions. Anyway, I going.
1: So I went to uni and did an engineering degree because, yeah, I was good at maths and science and that was kind of what you did. And a friend of mine was studying landscape design, landscape architecture, and he actually did his work experience with Thompson, what was then Thompson, wolveridge and Parrot, yep. who, who were based in Melbourne. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I, I didn't know you could do that. Like, and I think if I'd known that, I would have liked to have done landscape design. Yeah, but
0: yeah.
1: I was kind of, I read a lot about, you know, I was kind of a, a bit of a golf history nut. So anything to do with players and golf courses and, and what have you. And then when I was actually working at Drummond's, which is where our history uh, yeah, yeah. goes back to, yeah. my manager had a book, uh, The Confidential Guide to Golf Courses, so, which is Tom Doak's uh, book. Where he was kind of wrote these brutal reviews of of, of courses, some glowing but some brutal, yeah. and I was it coincided with a time when I was playing good golf. I was going on sort of international trips and things, and so every time I went on a trip, I would read through it and see what golf courses were in the area, what was good, what was bad, and I'd write away to them to see if I could go and play or even just to walk them. Yeah. And that kind of spurred a bit of an interest in, in in golf course design. I'd never really thought about why good holes were. Were good. Why, why were they interesting? You know, and so you have a bit of a light bulb moment. Um, and finally, my my now wife studied in London for about four months, and I lived with her there. So I, I got a chance to go and see pre, you know a lot of courses through the UK, all really through the Confidential Guide. That was kind of my my reference book. And then when I got back, I decided. Well, I actually had a funny experience. So I had a <laughs> this was a bit of a, a sliding doors moment. I remember trying to qualify for the British Open in England. And I was playing well. This is on that trip. And at that point, I still, part of my brain still wanted to be a player. You know, I wanted to yep. be a professional. I was kind of right on the line for getting in. And I remember sort of having, you know, it was an emotional day. You know, you I was three under and then you'd have a bogey and then I hold like a 50-foot putt. And so it's like suddenly I'm back in. And the second last hole was a blind par four. And my dad walked ahead and left the bag in the right rough and kind of walked back to the tee. And I hit this cut. Got up there and the ball's next to the bag, and two people were watching and said, Yeah, the golf ball hit the bag.
0: Oh, no. Oh, Kipper, what have you done to caddies everywhere?
1: Two shot penalty, missed it. And it wasn't no. my dad's fault. I mean, he felt terrible, but. Um,
0: it was Kipper's fault.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it was, so it was just, I kind of at that point, I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I can't, you know. And yeah. I, you know, I mean, you're still pretty young, and it's, but I just thought, uh, I'm not sure this is for me. And so literally when I got back, the design company I started working with, it just, started work at my then home club, Peninsula. Yep. And um, I kind of reached out and, and it just, you know, all the planets Infinite. aligned and it kind of was a foot in the door and that was, that was it really. And I, I kind of phased out playing and, you know, just fell into design, kind of boots and all.
0: And haven't looked back, which we'll get onto a lot little later on. But one thing that we do need to start with, and Shooter, given that I've been given the reins, he'll be shattered that I haven't started the way we normally do. Unfortunately, we have to start with a hate and a love, Michael, and uh, I'm hoping that you've done some preparation. So let's start with just to get the negativity out the way, as Damo would say, what's your hate, Michael? Are you got well,
1: well, I'll bring it back to golf course design. Perfect. Um, I hate – you see a lot of – I hate curvy lines. So you, you often <laughs> see fairway lines, you know, these ridiculous curves, but in and out, and in and out, and and sometimes with bunker edges too, just this, this perfect curve – and it's done under the guise of because they think it looks natural, but it does the exact opposite, like it looks anything but natural. So that's a pet peeve. I, I hate it. I hate it, to be, course.
0: We're <laughs> going to be friends because that is one of our big discussion topics, of oh, who right. invented who invented wavy lines.
1: Well, there's nothing uh, wrong with a straight line. And you see a lot, nothing against superintendents, but a lot of it's done by superintendents thinking that, oh, well, it looks good because, you know, it looks a bit more natural because you're curving in and out. But yeah. it just looks like one of
0: the wheels is broken on the mower. So. The old unnatural natural. Well, let's just go into your what. Just
1: go into your love. Love. I love a bit of quirk. I love a bit of quirk when it comes to golf course design. We, you don't. A lot of Australians. It's almost like golf course design in Australia is a little bit homogenised. You know, you don't see the really quirky stuff that you do in in particular in the UK and America. So you know, people think in Australia, they're not used to like you know alternative fairways or blind shots or you know things like that. But I, I like a bit of quirk. But you, you can overdo it, you know. You don't want to, you don't want to try too hard when it comes to quirk, or it looks like, you know, it's um, a bit engineered
0: yeah, quirk. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I do like a bit of quirk. If you've ever been, have you been to the UK? Have you played much in the UK at all?
0: Or? Not, not a lot, no. Because yeah. I've never been invited by OCM to go okay. over there with well, golf barons do. on a journey. But we'll get okay. to that.
1: All right, no worries.
0: We're, we're, we're at, we'll, we'll work it. But is there an example of one that stands out? Because we've got listeners in the UK and and through the US who travel a lot. Is there someone uh, in the UK that?
1: I mean courses like Prestwick are, you know it doesn't get much quirkier than Prestwick um, or North Berwick or you know they they um yeah they they're, they're pretty amazing really
0: so well, one no, there's one listeners who who is have just pricked up Young Tree who's Heard those names, has played a lot at those places and he'll already be enjoying this more yeah. than he ever has.
1: <laughs> in, there's actually one in New Zealand in Arrowtown, Arrow which is just out of Queenstown. That's pretty quirky. Yeah, yeah that's a great course.
0: So. And what is it that gives it that quirk? I mean, when you describe one, can you give us any, a specific of, or is it just that, oh, wow, that's a bit funky?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, good examples like at North Berwick, the pit hole, the 13th, is, is the hole with the wall. So there's like a you know 500-year-old wall and the green's just on the other side of the wall so it's sort of a short path for if you drive it too close to the wall you know you'll literally be stymied under the wall you've got no shot unless um, you're savvy yeah now if you built that now even the seven eight, the road hole i mean if you built that oh, now true, yeah. you'd be you know you, you just couldn't get away with it i mean the idea of hitting across the edge of a hotel but yeah they just i think when they've been there rather than creating work a uh, quirk sorry you might there might be a quirky landform, and you sort of build a hole onto it or make use of a quirky feature but but it's a fine line. You can easily, yeah, go the other way.
0: Take some courage. So it's said to be a good football coach or a great basketball coach or sports coach, you or, or even commentator. You have to have played the game at the highest level. Does the same apply to design? Is, is there a way that you view things having played at an elite level that we just don't?
1: No, I think it's. I think it's helpful. It it can be a hindrance. Nicholas was criticised for many years for. Building holes that favoured a fade shot because that was his kind of stock shot, right? Wow. And so sometimes people that hit draws might look at a hole and see something different than someone who hits fades. It, I think it's, I think it is helpful when it comes to sort of approach shots and green complexes, kind of having a feel for how people will play a particular shot, or when it's too difficult, it's helpful being. Being a competent golfer, i don't think you have to be an amazing golfer. I mean Mackenzie was a twelve or thirteen marker. I think it's probably most important that you just observe it that you've you know you've seen a lot of golf courses you've got a good good memory, good power of recall, good understanding of why the great holes are great so I think it would be difficult to not be a golfer and be a good yeah designer, but you don't have to be a great golfer no.
0: All right. There's an opportunity. (laughs) Golf Baron's course design is on its way. Now I've got some, uh, what I'm going to describe as novice design questions. So forgive me if some of these just sound silly.
1: No, no. Go for it.
0: Revetted bunkers or revetted bunkers. Yep. One of the great looks of a bunker in the opinion of Shooter and myself around the world is a revetted bunker and we don't see any of them. Now, Paraparumu started to do a little bit of work with them. I saw recently. Yeah. Why not?
1: Well, so, so they they're actually not that traditional. They've only they really only started revetting bunkers, I think, like fifty years ago. So if you've ever seen photos of the old course at St Andrews from like old Tom days, they were really rugged bunkers. They're really scabby. They didn't have these perfect revetted edges.
0: It's disappointing.
1: I actually think they look better, which is going to disappoint you. But yes, because a lot. because I think it's like the curvy lines. I think revetted bunkers look unnatural in an otherwise natural environment. So I think they're I... Ca- they're counter to what you know. It links golf was some of the most natural golf courses anywhere, and then you get this perfectly clean edge that I think looks odd. <laughs>
0: Oddly <laughs> awesome is what well, you're trying to say. They look oddly awesome. So the reason that people don't or they're not pursued in design is actually more because they just don't make sense? Or what, so no, what's the, no, it's not. Tell me it's, why no, they, I can't
1: see any in Australia. No, it, it's, they're expensive to do. Yep. It's a real skill. Like in the UK, when I was at St Andrews, I actually met a couple of the guys that do a lot of the revetting. And there was a group of guys that would do a lot of the revetting at all of the golf courses. Almost like a contractor because that was their specialty. So it uses a heap of turf, like the the hell bunker at St Andrews, the really oh, big bunker on fourteen. I think yeah. it took a hectare of turf to do it, so two and a half acres. So and
0: they do that every couple of years. Two, I think five, they redo the bunkers every. I think, is it five? I think,
1: I think every five. It coincides with the Open Rotor, so they do it, okay. you know, okay. like the year before the Open. So it uses a lot of turf, really manual, and it. So I think it was bought in mainly to prevent erosion. Because it's kind of beachside sand, so it's that sand that doesn't really it's not like sandbelt sand, which is kind of finer and angular and sort of holds together. You know if you've I always found at St. Andrews, like when the ball went in a bunker, it's almost like it under its own weight, it sort of
0: went stops.
1: and it sort of dropped a little bit. So you could never hit a spinning shot. Every shot was almost like a semi-fat, like you'd sort of flub it out. So the sand kind of it's, it's like beach sand. It's like playing
0: a bunker shot on the beach. So so, yes. so, that's not – so my lack of bunker skill when I was lucky enough to play older New at and St Andrews was not because I'm crap. It was <laughs> the Sands' fault. It
1: could, well, it could have been a bit of both, but it's, I always found it difficult. Like you just, it, you, it wasn't like playing bunkers bunker shots in Melbourne. You didn't have that firm sort of firm base. But, yeah, so, yeah, they were kind of bought in for, I think, initially for, to help with erosion. Now it's more of an aesthetic thing. A lot of people just like that look, like yourself. But it is yeah. expensive – and you can't, over here, you've got to use the right turf too because if you use cooch, so if you stack cooch sods on each other, yeah. the cooch eventually kind of grows over and it just ends up as a big grass oh, wall. Right, okay. So, so to keep those layers, those tiles, you've got to use like a like a fescue or cool season grass.
0: Well, that's a disappointing answer, which means <laughs> that we're unlikely to see revetted bunkers. at So would it be fair to say that we're unlikely to see a riveted bunker at an OCM course? I think it's
1: unlikely you're going to see that perfect clean. Gil Hans did some cool bunkers at the castle course where he revetted just sections of them, which yep. is how it originally evolved. And um, right, okay. something like that would be quite cool, but I don't think you'll ever see, yeah, formal revetted
0: bunkers. Well, can you get onto that and just give us something? <laughs> just throw one bunker in. Just dedicate. We'll call it the Baron's Bunker because <laughs> yeah, every go. cool bunker's got to have a name. Just give go. me a Baron's Bunker at a course somewhere. Okay. We'll help fund it okay. somehow. All right. My next novice design question, and you kind of touched on it before. Why don't bunkers, greens, or tees have sharp corners? Who decided that the coffin bunker being rectangular was now uncool and we needed to make everything round and as you said, with the wavy lines. I, we like corners. Uh, Give me straight lines and corners. Give me an explanation.
1: Yeah, so so kind of like the square green thing?
0: Yeah, look like yeah. Oakmont, Wingfoot, Foot, yeah. Philly Cricket Club, or even Lonsdale Links, yes, Michael. Yes,
1: well, yes.
0: Um, <laughs> which we'll get onto.
1: So the square edges, so I think it was like a carryover from, I don't know whether you've ever seen photos of golf courses that were the geometric style golf courses, lots of straight lines and like really early days, late 1800s. Old Tom built some square greens. And then in the 20s, you know, like you said, like uh, Yeamans Hall and Chicago had some square edges. Yep. I think over time, a lot of those courses, like Wingfoot, edges tend to get rounded off just through mowing, through simplicity. You know, it's the advent of the tri- the triplex mower, the, the ride on mower, it would have become difficult to the point of impossible to kind of retain the, the sharp edges. So a lot of those classic courses lost their square edges. Over years, and you can you can see it on aerials. Everything just tends to get rounded off uh, and shrunk too. So the greens would tend to shrink, smaller and, and more rounded.
0: And, then and your was, Hands mentioned, yeah, sorry,
1: yeah, no, you're right. And then yeah, in the last twenty years, this whole revival of restoring golf courses has seen a return to kind of putting them back. So you saw all those amazing shaped greens at Wingfoot. I know Tom Doak has you know squared off the edges again at Chicago, and so we've seen a bit of a bit of a throwback and leading on to Lonsdale, that's where a lot of the idea of that came from. I mean, in, in Australia, we've never seen anything like that. All our greens in Australia are circles or ovals, you know.
0: Yeah, kidney shapes or a little yeah. round. Oh, yes, everything's kind of round, but yeah. the, we all grew up playing circular greens because Absolutely. obviously they were the easiest ones to, to put on. Yeah. But th- there's just a – because partly it's the beauty of we, – so we see a lot of drone shots of golf courses. Yeah. You never get to play a golf course – from sitting high above it, so so we almost get this majesty of a golf course, but it's not through a player's eye view. But the idea of square, so the idea of square is is more obvious from a drone than anywhere else. Yeah, it is. But yeah. to be able to walk on a green and be snookered, we love the idea of having a ball that is actually sitting in a in a corner just to change the whole perspective of of things. And there's just so did it just become so? It was partly ease and partly just me too. As, as more corners got rounded off, then everyone just said, let's just cut to the chase and round them off?
1: Oh, and I think also there was probably more of a shift. Like Mackenzie never built anything square and he was a huge advocate of building courses that looked natural. He was, tr- yeah. he was trying to mimic nature and I guess in nature you don't see many straight lines, you don't see many sharp edges. And so I, there was probably a shift away from it. So, it's, yeah, a multitude of things, you know, just, just evolution, you know, as things age and and things got rounded off, but also probably a shift. So it's, it's really just been something that in the last 20 years, I think, is, we've seen it return to.
0: So I get a cross on riveted bunkers, and yep. so far I'm getting a cross on straight lines on greens. Um, but even tees, it, that that crispness of edge of teas, you see a lot of that. And, again, if we go back to winged foot, as you say, Oakmont, I mean, there's this absolute beauty of yeah, It is a rectangle. Now, I know the rest of the course is natural and we want it to fit in. I don't know why I like straight lines and corners in no, reverted bunkers.
1: We, yeah, we, we just built square tees at Shady Oaks, so the course we did in Texas. And, oh, um, don't
0: worry, you're going to get a chance to brag yeah. <laughs> about that too.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's interestingly, I guess that's the the irony that is whilst a lot of American courses lost their square edged greens, they all managed to retain the square <laughs> yeah, that's T's. Right. Because kind of, the whole notion of a tea box, is, it's kind of an Americanism, really. I don't know why that is. If they, were, if they were capable of retaining the square edges on the teas, they should have been on the greens.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I knew we'd delve into something you didn't have an answer for. <laughs>
1: yeah, I didn't have an answer for that.
0: <laughs> I would suggest the tea mowers flat out refused to do the greens. And they said, <laughs> the apprentices down to the greens, who are all about shortcuts, just oh, look, just get it done so yeah. it can go home and have a beer.
1: But you do, one of the, probably more so than an aesthetic thing, one of the big losses that you'd see on the Golden Age courses was the green shrinking. Yes, yes. So they'd move away from the bunkers and some of it was for all these reasons that they wanted to be able to mow a surrounds lap with a rod on mower between the bunker and the green. And you just saw pretty much, you name a Golden Age course and if you look at the old aerials and then you look at them in the 70s or 80s and they will have lost, you know, six feet around the whole green. And that kind uh, and, of yeah. diluted the strategy and, and diluted the interest, really.
0: And, and Gil Hans mentioned that as well about 16, 17 at Wingfoot, Ogilvy's chip-in.
1: Yes, yeah. That
0: in, in this year's US Open, he would have been he would have on been, the green.
1: Yeah, he would have been putting Yep. Yeah,
0: he would have been putting. So, so who knows what might have happened. So, <laughs> luckily, they did get lazy <laughs> and and go for shortcuts because <laughs> he, <it>, <laughs> he might have lagged it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Gave us a gave us a major grass bunkers on versus yep. sand.
1: Well, because you're all, you're always striving for, for variety as a as one of the challenges as a golf course designer. You don't want to just fall into your your favourites, your go tos. You know, I always like the odd hole. Almost almost like one or two holes every course. I kind of love it when there's no green site bunkers. I think it's harder to build a great hole without bunkers, but they can be a bit of a crutch. And I think if you've got a really interesting green site and you can make it great without a bunker, it's, I think it's it's good to do. There, there's a, you might not know of it, but there's a great course in England called Royal Ashdown Forest, and there's no bunkers what? on the entire course. Not one. Not one. It's a Heathland course. And it's, it's a pretty, I don't know, it's a long winded reason. But it, I think it's Crown Land. And they outlawed excavations on the site. And so bunkers being excavated, they couldn't build bunkers. Even though when you play it, there's all these hollows and things around the greens, which yeah, presumably yeah. they excavated. But, um, and it's amazing, fantastic golf course. And you, you kind of don't, you're halfway through the round before you notice there's no bunkers. But there's cool, like some of the holes, like I mean, the fourth at Woodlands, I mean, it's a brilliant green, yeah. no bunkers. You know, there's quite a few around Melbourne without bunkers, I think. So.
0: Yeah, and, and just letting go of the, I must have one, yeah. as opposed to hang on, it just works really well with that one. And some of Dokes, work, I mean, that's one of the nice things about St Andrews Beach. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah. It's not overly bunkered. You don't get the sense of no, I've gone long.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think Augusta when it opened had like thirty thirty odd bunkers, thirty two bunkers. There's hardly any bunkers. Wow.
0: um, Now they've got 30 on the first. (laughs) Here's one from, and this is a, a particularly Melbourne golf course centric one. Yep. Now Damo has coined a phrase, the power constrictors. Given some of the best greens in the world have got power. Why was it that in Melbourne, there was this absolute strong, almost fanatical movement to rid ourselves of power? It was the, the, the anti-power movement of, that I believe was was Graham Grant and that said power was the devil. Why is power the devil?
1: I, th- I think it's it's harder to have consistently firm, fast greens with power. Certainly in Melbourne, historically, it has been. I know there's exceptions because Oakmont are power and they're <laughs> like 16 on the stump and firm. But I guess that traditional Melbourne, that wooden sound of, you know, when it's really hard and quick, I think, and maybe it's because we had a lot of golfers as well, you know, forty, fifty thousand 50,000 rounds a year. That was e- easier to attain with, with pure bent as opposed to power. And then I think when clubs were fighting power, and that's when it got really ugly. Like if you had 20% power, we'll say, and you were in the afternoon field, the power would grow quicker than the bent. So you'd, then you'd get the bumpiness. So I, I would say it's just, Consistently better as uh, to get firm fast greens using bent as opposed to power, but there are outliers to that. You know, there's exceptions to that, and it's it's not achievable. I mean, there's a new chemical out now that guys are sort of pinning all their hopes on called Power Cure, which kind of wipes it, wipes power out of bent. But um, power is a great survivor, and no doubt, you know, it'll build up a resistance to it or something in ten years' time, and they'll be searching for the next chemical. But it, it's expensive to keep greens power free, so it's not something that every club can achieve. You know, the the handful of elite sandbelt clubs can justify it, they can do it. But if you're a third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier golf club, it's it's not worth the fight. And you're almost better just allowing the, the power to take over and just work with that.
0: And embrace it. And I think that's yeah, that's, that's right. therefore the the question is if it is such an aggressive grass and just really wants to be there, is then yeah. is there a point from a course design where you say, look, let's just cut to the chase and let it get there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Sometimes on those courses you might just call one of the other greens on the course and use that to establish a new green. So you end up with a mix of the the older powers, because old power too can be is better than new power. So new new power when it pops up in your lawn, it's a big plant and big seed heads and it's really clumpy. Whereas like Oakmont's power, has, you know, been there for ninety years and it's refined and it's and it's tight and it's it's a finer grass. So there's there's power and there's power.
0: Are we therefore, is the sandbelt better for being pure bent than were it to have been Oakmont Power?
1: I think it is. And I, I don't.
0: Well, it's not controversial.
1: No, because Power also, it's really shallow rooted. So you tend to have to water it more. Right. Okay. So, so then it's hard to achieve those really firm, fast, you know. I mean, that's the reputation of the sandbelt. And that's how, if the greens weren't firm, they're defenseless because they're not that long anymore. And that's the beauty of the sandbelt is that they're, you know, you can play the Tuesday women's comp, and four days later you could host an Australian Open without really changing anything you know, because you're rewarding people for being in position and, and penalising them for being yeah. out of position. Yeah. But, but the only way you can do that is with really firm greens.
0: My last novice question, then we'll get on to the good stuff. When you design a golf course, do designers design – that's a lot of use of the word design. Do you design from the, the tiger tee or the back tee – do you design from the, the tea mostly most likely to be most playable? And the, the background for my question was particularly playing the Matter course, Tom Doak's new design down at the National. And we played that off the, the normal tees, and then we a friend and I played the black tee challenge on our own, and the course has changed. It is a different golf course. Yeah. Not just because it's longer, but the black tees are different places. So is the ultimate design of a golf course a black tee design? And then you deal with the other tees from there, or how do you deal with that?
1: No, I would say we try and design for the majority, and then look for interesting back tees and forward tees to to add to it. Okay, so we don't.
0: So when we when we play off the standard tee, say it's going to matter. That, yeah. that is sort of how Doak would have envisaged it, and then he would have thought, okay, but if you want to test yourself, why don't I chuck a tee behind that hill?
1: I would imagine. I mean, two the what, and I know Tom's a big advocate of it is. And we do the same Is you, in terms of the bunkering, for instance, you're trying to bunker, you're building bunkers where it fits the land rather than building them at a set distance. Okay. And and by doing that, you end up with a, a mixed bag. You know, there might be some bunkers that are 120 meters off the tee just because they look good. And then there might be some bunkers 280 meters from the tee. So you end up in the course of a round, everyone has to deal with a bunker rather yeah. than for a long time there, you know, in the seventies, bunkers people would have a theory on, oh, all my bunkers are between 250 and 270 yards because that's how far the PGA took place. Hit it. Yeah. So we'll, we don't take that approach.
0: Yeah. Awesome. A randomness. Randomness. It, coming back. A randomness of straight lines, corners, revetted bunkers. And, well, not the revetted bunkers. bunkers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing the barrow though. <laughs> From a design point of view, your key influences in, in method, I mean, there's always been this, are you trying to reinvent the wheel or are you actually just trying to understand it? or as I've described, changed the tires of it. So when you look at your designs, are you do you set out to say, no, no, we've got to put our stamp on this so that everyone knows this is an OCM course? Or are you happy to be a little bit oh, I've got a little bit of McKenzie, a little bit rock and roll, a little bit of Tillinghast over here and some Rice and some McDonald.
1: It's a good question. Like I mean often My first one. Well I know no, you've had a few. Um <laughs> If I think if it's a – we've done a lot of work on old golf courses that have got an interesting history. And so there, like say the work we do at Kingston Heath, you kind of – you know, history is a big part of it. So you're actually looking at the old aerials and the old photos and understanding how the holes have changed and trying to evaluate whether there's something worth reinstating or whether it's, you know, whether you have to deviate away from that. If there's no kind of significant history at a particular golf course – We like to try and give each site its own unique look. You know, every site's different. So the scale of the site's different. Some are really big and open. Some are kind of tight and confined. Soil's different. Vegetation's different. Type of grasses are different. So we don't really like to – the best compliment would be that it's difficult to pigeonhole us in a way. I think think there are similarities between all our courses. Like they're always going to be pretty wide off the tee and green complexes are going to be interesting. But – we're always trying to build a different style of bunker. Well, not always, but a lot of the time we're trying yeah, to, we, yeah. we just don't want to build the same style bunker, for instance, or the same style green or, you know, the sandbelt greens, typically a, a big long tilt, which is different from, say, Lonsdale, where there's a lot more character to the greens, different from, you know, the, one of the very first courses I did at, at Hillsville had these really, really wild greens. So it's, we're always trying to kind of fit the design to the site, I guess, and to the client rather than just having a go-to... That and can you?
0: Kind of. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, no, of course not. But can you walk onto a? Uh, can you walk onto a golf course and know it's a? If you didn't know the history of it, and I, this is impossible because you are a history buff and you do, could you? Could you pick a McKenzie? Could you pick a Tillinghurst? Oh, could you pick I, a?
1: I don't think I could. No, I mean, there's sort of some architects. There might be giveaways, but it would be hard to walk onto a a course and just you know, play a few holes and go, oh, well, you know, clearly this is a, <laughs> like you were sniffing a wine, you know. <laughs> you know, clearly this must be a Mackenzie or this is a Ross or, you know, I think that would be or, difficult.
0: Or even a Nick I mean, even if the modern, guy, like still the same thing because they're all, I mean, they're not, none of them, I understand a cookie cutter. Yeah. But are there certain themes that you just go, oh, well, that bunker doesn't belong. That must be, oh, I won't say Nicholas. You,
1: I t- I t- well, so some Pete Dye courses, look, Pete, you know, ha- had a, a certain look to them through the set and because it was so different to what everyone else was building. Yep. That probably, I mean, it's not answering your question, but I think one thing you can, if you've got a good eye, you can usually tell if something's been added. So you may not be able to say that this is a McKenzie course, but you could walk a few holes and go, this doesn't look original. Some, this is yes, right. okay. This okay. has been added. Or so, so you can pick those sorts of things a lot of the time. But okay. I, d- I don't think there is something that's such a distinguishing feature that it makes the course obviously a you know Tillinghast or a Ross or a McKenzie.
0: Yeah. Okay, okay, all right. No, I'll accept that answer for now. <laughs> Last one about bunker shaping. Yep, we hypothesised that that maybe one of the challenges, and when you look at and and again, it was particularly listening to Gillahan's talk about foot and a couple of other courses he's done and talking about bunkering. Is there a a gift that Vern and Mick Morcom using shovels were able to create bunker shapes that are not able to be created these days because we use backhoes and diggers. Is there something to be said for feet on the ground and actually that that fine tuning with a a trowel? The,
1: there's something to be said for feet on the ground, and you know it's a reason that we would never do a detailed design and give it to a contractor to go. And, I mean, we build all our own work, and we've got really highly skilled operators that share the love of golf and, you know, building great-looking hazards. But there's not really anything that, you know, that you can't do with an excavator that you could have done with a shovel or a horse and scoop. They certainly, though, you know, they don't get their share of credit, the Morecams, for the work around Melbourne. They really did create that distinctive Melbourne style, that Melbourne look with their bunkering. Although I think, too, a lot of that has been a result of evolution. You know, 80 years of wind and rain has, yeah, yeah. you know, that flare-up you get on the edge of a green where it kind of rises into the bunker, I think a lot of that's actually just sand splash over the years and, yes, and the wind okay, yeah. and things. So it's sort of it's a combination of factors. But, yeah, they were they were, they were brilliant. I mean, Mackenzie raved about Mick Malkin when he was here. He thought he was the best greenkeeper he'd ever seen. So they were very talented. It's not a
0: bit. It's not a bad pump up, is it? Yeah. So a little bit about just about you and some projects. Your first work, yes, Michael. A little birdie told me that it may or may not have been at a place called Eastern Sword That's in correct. Melbourne. Yep. Your very first, your very first design job. Through to a couple of favourites.
1: Yeah, it was. So I was lucky enough that I think we were busy. And so I was probably 23 or 24 and it was a small project. So I think it was the guys saw it as a chance for, you know, me to cut my teeth, I guess. So, yeah, it'll always kind of have a soft spot. So we built um, three or four new greens and some tees and bunkers and, you know, we definitely improved the golf course. And strangely, we've actually been, I've been back there a couple of times just recently, helping them with a couple of things. So, yeah, that was has fond memories for
0: sure. So from a little place like that through to Shady Oaks, which you mentioned, and I've I've got a quote here. Anyone who is building a golf course anywhere in the world and doesn't come down to see what has been done at Shady Oaks will be making a big mistake, is a quote from Ben Hogan about Shady Oaks. That's right. What a challenge yeah to then take that on
1: <laughs> yeah it, they've been brilliant I mean it's such a nice, fantastic club i mean as a yeah as a history buff it's kind of you get it's amazing hanging around the club because it's such a shrine to hogan really I mean he spent most of his time there from like the late fifties through to when he passed away, so lots of cool stories, lots of pressure as if it's our first project in America, and we opened it last week, so and it's opened yeah very very. Very, very favourable comments. The members are loving it, uh, which has been brilliant. So, so yeah. And have
0: you been able to have you been able to get there? Or how much time have you spent on the ground?
1: I was fortunate in a way. So we started in July last year, and I was doing two weeks out of every four in America. Well, so I would go there for two weeks, come back for two weeks, go back. You know, so I just I did that from July through to March, and that was so my last visit sort of coincided with. COVID so we managed to get everything shaped and built and then the details a lot of the detailing and sort of mowing lines and things I was able to do over like what we're doing now really so they've got a terrific superintendent Brent Doolittle and because we'd spent so much time together there was a lot of things we were just on the same page about so you know he he almost knew before he asked me what the answer was going to be and so that made life a lot easier and we'd just kind of shoot back and forth photos and I'd Photoshop them up or I'd change this or change that and we, we were probably talking and emailing most days for probably two or three months. Yeah, so we still speak every every week or two and but, yeah, it's, it's gone really well so we're looking forward to getting back in. I'm hoping to be back there in March or April next year.
0: Yes, we all are mm, with golfers as part of the journey. What, what did you learn about Mr Hogan then or was there anything that stood out? Is there, a, is there a, a story about about Mr. Hogan or just about Shady Oaks in general that yeah, you just go, yep. wow?
1: There's a few good ones. So Marvin Leonard was a department store owner and he developed Shady Oaks. So he, on doctor's recommendation in the 30s, he was, they suggested he should go and play golf because I think he was a bit of a stressor. And um, say so
0: Oh yeah, that'll help.
1: Yeah. So he went down to the local- Club called Glen Garden. And there were two, well, at the same time, two kids had sort of started caddying there. And he struck up a friendship with one of the kids. And that was Ben Hogan. So he was like a 12 year old. And I think his dad had passed away. And I think he became a bit of a father figure. And that was like a start of a lifelong friendship. And then Leonard went on and built Colonial in Fort Worth. And so Hogan, by then, was sort of a famous golfer. So he sort of joined there. And then at the quite a few members suggested that he build a smaller private course also in Fort Worth and that became Shady Oaks. So they built that in 58. And Hogan famously said, it's too steep, it's too undulating and it's too rugged to be a good golf course, <laughs> which is contrary to <laughs> the quote you read out. So he kind of warned him against it. But we've not found that at all. I mean, I think it's it's steep in a couple of spots, but to the point where it makes the holes spectacular. You know, It's a yeah. really interesting property. It's got a couple of kind of old ravines running through a part of it. It's got a river that bisects, goes sort of between three holes. It's got some really steep ground. It's got some flatter ground. It's like it's, you couldn't look at it and not think in modern day that it's not an interesting property. But maybe back then, I mean, Texas is a pretty flat state, and so maybe for Texas and in the 50s they thought, you know, yep. too severe. But,
0: and yeah. was that more restoration? That was that was restoration yeah. more than rebuild. or was no, it wasn't,
1: no, it was complete rebuild in the end. Yeah, Trent Jones did the design originally, but he didn't supervise it. Someone, a different architect, Ralph Plummer, implemented it, and there were elements that we kept, like we kept the routing. But in the end, it was yeah, it was more of a redesign than a restoration. It's it's not it, there wasn't sort of some you know dusty old plan in the back of the room that showed that, you know, Tillingist had been there and and cr- yes, yeah, create yeah. you know, when, Damn, okay. it was not that. So but it's a beautiful club and you know, I'd like to think now they've got a course that kind of matches the the character of the club. Whereas before it was the course wasn't as good as the standing of the of the club, so to speak, with Hogan.
0: Well the members would have told you by now if they weren't happy with it one week in. <laughs> I mean you yes. would have been hearing lots of yeah, you, usually, you would know. You'd be usually in no, no uncertainty.
1: Yeah, first day you won't hear it, but by <laughs> by probably <laughs> week end of week one or two, you'd start to hear a bit of chirping. But so, no, no, it's been it's been brilliant, really,
0: and it looks fantastic. I, I encourage everyone to to check out Shady Oaks. It, it really it looks infinitely playable and infinitely golf Baron's journeyable. Sorry, I might harp on that a little bit. But That's all right. We get there. What about the challenges of working in China? So on your website, ocm.golf, there's. Two beautiful looking, well, well, one that that exists, or do they both exist? Which is no, Yangtze Dunes. So one,
1: so one, which is not uncommon in China, the government stopped construction halfway through. Yeah, fair enough. In in Beijing, and so that's not a going concern. But yeah, Yangtze Junes, which is in uh, Shanghai, was the the first course we did, and really Ashley deserves the credit there. He was the the lead designer on that, and I he was he spent probably hundred and twenty days on site. And I, no. I was there maybe 40, I guess, 40 or 50. But, yeah, it's um, it was interesting. It's right on the banks of the Yangtze River. It was a Nicholas course and they sort of dredged the river to create this faux sort of links. And the all of the, the big scale work was really, really good. And it did feel very linksy. But, so we focused more on the greens and the bunkers and sort of the general strategies. We've shifted a couple of holes and it's been really successful. And it was fun. I mean, it was just we're kind of one of the, I think one of the joys of, design is is the travel aspect and almost immersing yourself in a, another culture you know the, the trying the foods and you know understanding the you know the language and the culture and the differences and I, I think that's a fun part of it so i mean i know some even designers that travel and they they don't want to you know they don't want to get outside their comfort zone you know yeah. they want to have their mcdonald's or whatever but no i think that was a, a really nice part of it so we got to see quite a lot of the countryside and We'd have dinner with, you know, in the local village with, with the staff. And, and likewise, in, you know, I mean, I love traveling to Texas. It's fun. So we'd, you know, plenty of barbecue and um, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> went to a honky tonk and <laughs> all that sort of Look stuff. At
0: me, yeah, just showing off. <laughs> if we deal with a couple of passion projects close to home yep. uh, and close to your heart, and one that, that has already been mentioned, Lonsdale Links.
1: Well, very Again, this is more of an Ashley project than me, but it's. But a, I'm
0: interviewing you. Yeah, well, I know, I know.
1: But. Um, <laughs> No, it's really interesting. So we, it's about, it's different. I guess it's it's got a lot of differences from everything else that's been produced in the last ten or twenty years. But one is the length. You know, it's a really fun length golf course. It's only about five seven meters, so five thousand seven hundred meters, so sort of six four six three thousand yards. But he and I both loved a lot of the the work we were talking about earlier. A lot of the work of Seth Rayner and Charles Blair McDonald, and the club also liked the idea of having a point of difference. And so it sort of evolved into this, a bit of a throwback to, to this era. There's something called the templates, so template golf holes. And, and basically that all came about when Charles Blair MacDonald built the National Golf Links. Golf was just starting in America and he did what most people would probably think to do. He, he had learnt the game in Scotland He'd actually been taught the game by Old Tom and Young Tom Morris, oh. two two good teachers, and he got a taste. Of, I know he got a taste of golf over there, and he he went back to Scotland when he knew the national golf course was going to be built, and he kind of looked at the best holes. So he almost had his sort of the, the eighteen best holes, and when they built the National Golf Links, they kind of fitted those holes to the landscape. So there's a Mm. there's a copy of the you know of a hole at North Berwick, and there's a copy of a hole at Prestwick, and they were slightly changed to fit the land. But and these kind of became known as templates, and the work that Charles Blair Macdonald did, and Seth Rayner after him, and Charles Banks typically on all their designs, there would be four or five of these templates. So there's often a road hole and there's often a short hole and there's a Beritz and there's a Redan. Yep. You can kind of go through all these courses in America. And we just loved that idea. And so down at Lonsdale, there is probably a dozen, not entire holes, but certainly elements of those templates. So that you'll see a Beritz green down there and there's kind of a reverse Redan and there's a hole. The one in the background to your picture there is kind of Thank you. That, that bunker is a bit of a ode to the road hole bunker. And yeah, so it's a kind of an interesting story. And it's just it's a really unique property. It it, it fits in a way because now that with that development, the, the club bought some land next door, some farmland next door, and we opened up the the old property. There was quite a bit of tree removal and now they kind of merge together. And it feels like you're in Long Island. New York. Like it feels like one of those properties. So the the idea of the wow. templates and everything kind of matches the site. So and that's gonna open it's opening around Christmas time. So I think Oh exciting. It's uh, yeah, it's gonna be really exciting. So
0: Yeah that's cool. And then and then one a little bit closer being Sandringham.
1: Yeah. Yep. So we started working at Sandringham about a year and a half ago. So again, it's it's an interesting one because it's it's a shorter course than most people are used to like it's it's not even five thousand meters long but there's always been this mystique around sandringham that it was once part of royal melbourne and so as kids you know growing up you always thought oh you know it's pretty special and it's actually not the case but still it's a good it's a good story i spread that lie a number of times (laughs) (laughs) well i did too i just thought it was but royal melbourne look after it they've got the maintenance there and so working with richard forsyth the superintendent we he was quite happy when we sort of suggested the idea of could we mimic the grassing at Royal Melbourne at Sandy? So, and, and he was more than happy to do it. So the greens are the same grass as at Royal Melbourne, the Sutton's mix bent grass, and they've got fescue surrounds. And, and we've built the greens and bunkers in very much that sandbelt style. So it's nice that the public can kind of get a taste, I guess, of mm, sandbelt golf, which they couldn't before. And even though the holes are short, it's you could argue it's every golf city needs a course of that length because it's, it's perfect for beginners, it's perfect for kids, it's perfect for people that find a big course too long. So it's yeah, that that too actually we've got yeah, it's an interesting couple of months, but it 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 will open in sometime around November as well. So wow. uh, got a bit, bit going open. on. Yeah, a bit going on. So
0: <laughs> I was going to ask, and I won't put you on the spot, but I was going to ask just for the record, Victoria Golf Club screens yep. versus Peninsula Kingswood oh, right. in the south. Yeah. Two of the greatest putting surfaces yeah that that I've ever had the joy of standing on Yep, is one better than the other
1: so early on, I would say so when Victoria first opened, and this isn't uh, a criticism at all, but they were just they were just they were just young and so they hadn't they, had, they yeah. hadn't really started you know top dressing them regularly and getting the heights down and so when they very first opened, you would have said, oh peninsulas are better greens but but Having since gone back and obviously played the course a number of times, you couldn't pick them really. It's kind of line ball. I think one day you might go to Victoria and say, well, these are better than peninsulas and six months later, go back. They're very similar. But not all grasses travel that well. I mean, sometimes like I've seen grasses in America that are the same as what's here and they look like two completely different grasses because the the sand's different, the climate's different and the management of them is different. But in that case, I think they both look very similar. So it's a it's a pretty cool grass, a great surface. So.
0: Are there better grains on the planet in terms of quality than those two?
1: I think when they're good, they're as good as anywhere. Yeah, I've not seen yeah. anything better. But they also match the firmness with the speed. That's the yeah. and the trueness. You you often see beautiful surfaces overseas, but I'm not sure many places can attain the firmness that that we can on the sandbell. And that's the one of the most – I remember being out on the north course last summer and I was on the second north and I had my putter out and I was just bouncing it on the green and you just had that amazing wooden dull that, <laughs> that just reverberates and because you're in a bit of a bowl there on two north. Yeah. Until you experience that, I think, like we've talked about it to, with the guys at Shady Oaks and they can't quite grasp just how firm those greens get until they see it. Like the idea that you can't find your pitch mark is just completely foreign. <laughs> it's foreign to them. But they will never experience that just because, you know, it's such a different different growing, you know, different environment
0: over there. We've got to have something just to ourselves too. Exactly. Now, a, a couple of things that are, that you are personally passionate about that I only discovered as part of my extensive research. Golf renderings. Oh, yes, Michael.
1: yes. Well, I've always liked art and my dad taught art at school and so did my mum actually dad was particularly very gifted artist and still is he doesn't paint or draw much anymore but and so I think I was just so I always sort of was keen on drawing and painting and I didn't really do anything with it for a long time but then when I got into golf course design there was suddenly a reason to actually draw if you know what I mean and I didn't realize that or maybe I did but not many people can draw so it was quite useful to be on site and with a sketchbook and a pen, even just a five-minute quick sketch, to be able to say, "Oh, kind of like this." Is this what is this what we're thinking? Because otherwise, you're just flumming around with your hands, and <laughs> no, yeah, no one yeah, under- yeah. no one understands what you're talking about. So, then I kind of just grew from there, really. And then I there was a couple of I, when I was lucky enough to work at, on St Andrews Beach, and I did the kind of the the layout of the i didn't design it but i did, did the drawing and they used it in all their marketing and and what have you and kind of grew from there really and then when down at barnboogle dunes they wanted me to do a, a course guide so i did a course guide and it proved to be really popular and so i don't i sort of don't really seek out i've got a website and i i've, all, I'm always, I've always which is uh golfrenderings.com.au thank you but I don't um to be honest I don't have a lot of time these days but I always it's a nice diversion from what I do even though it's golf it's a nice diversion from what I do you know nine to five so I do occasional bits of artwork for clubs I do I just did two big renderings of the north course and the south course for Peninsula which they've got in the clubhouse and they sold sort of miniatures of to, to to members and did their course guide and I just did a series of covers for the shady oaks scorecards so they've got five or six different sketches of golf holes on the front cover of different scorecards and so i'm kind of always i like to stay i like to be doing something i don't like sitting still i get bored if i'm not doing something so but i'm not sort of actively out there trying to drum up business if if that makes sense
0: yeah, there's a. Um, I think there were two that struck me on your website, and it was having been there in March uh, around Cape Wickham. The just the watercolors, but even the flow. I mean, you have got a really ad- an outstanding sense of contour, and I think the snippet was eighteen and seventeen. It was just perfect. I mean, I was actually looking at it, just going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's perfect." I have to bring this up because it's just. Out- <laughs> I mean, it's just outstanding. And again, these unknown skills. You, un- I get the des- the drawing bit yeah. from an engineering and from a course design, yeah. but there's a there's a skill in art that, as you say, very few. Ever understand?
1: Yeah. And and it's just, it's an interesting, they kind of fit together hand in glove. You know, I don't use it all the time. But even when, so in the field, like at Shady Oaks, I didn't do it on every hole, but sometimes, like, because we work very closely with our shapers. And so as part of the design process, sometimes it might be a vague idea of this, you know, I'm kind of thinking the green's tilting like this and a bunker here and a bunker there. And this one's a big bunker and it's a small and I might have some specific ideas or, you know, I really want it to do this or to do that. Other times there might be a chance to just, you know, almost to say to one of the guys, look, just fill this space with a bunker, go for it, you know, and and it might be perfect, you might want to tweak it, but other times it's helpful to do a drawing. So at Shady there was four or five holes where I actually did a worked up drawing almost standing in the fairway and like, this is what I'm thinking this is going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really handy to be able to do that, I must say, because you don't plan views. A lot of people don't understand it. You can draw it from the air, which is how a lot of architectural drawings are. Yeah. But it's almost more important to get a sense of no, no. What's it going to look like if I'm standing here? Like you know, what, what's the hole going to look like? Not not from the air, but from the ground. So yeah, so completely useful. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Dave Sclady talks about that in his photography that, you know, he likes to get a sense of the imposing shot that's about to happen as well as as much as the scenery and everything else. You, yeah. you need to get that golfer's eye view to get a sense of what the intent of the design was. Which
1: – and that's an interesting subject in itself, but it, it's funny how different photographers – actually, I so I had the superintendent at Shady Oaks take some photos because we needed some photos because I'm not there – for just for, for the opening. And um as a hobby he takes pictures of birds like the flying yep. kind, not the. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Don't worry. But as a result he like uses these big lenses and everything's zoomed in. So he took these pictures yeah. of golf holes and everything was like zoomed in and all you could <laughs> see was like half a bunker and a bit of the green. And I'm like no 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 you got to pull yeah. it out. And then a friend of mine who's an architect went and took some photos and all of his were exactly how I'd take them. So it was kind of interesting how different. Yeah, well. and, and some professional photographers even, they like the drama, but they don't necessarily take photos from where the golfer sees the shot. And it's important. You kind of want to see the view of the hole from the tee and you want to see it from the landing area. You don't always want yeah. the obscure view, you know, looking across a hole or looking backwards or, you know, whatever.
0: So interesting segue yeah well tenuous links <laughs> exactly now we're going to uh, i'm going to attempt to go down a track just for the last couple of minutes with something that has been recommended to me to to ask and we all know about personality profiling michael yep yeah, yeah. and so one of the one of the types is a, a disc profile which is all around you know dominance and, and influence and steadiness and conscientiousness in terms of how you do things i want to apply this to how you would play a couple of different golf holes to then be able to just just behind the scenes maybe provide a little personality profile as to michael Cocking on that basis of this disc personality profile, um, and thanks, John, from Chicago for your suggestion. As a designer, mm-hmm. how would you play well, – I'll just give you two – three at Royal Melbourne West and 15 at Vic. Well, 15
1: at well, – what's the situation?
0: Well, You've got there is no there is no situation, Vic- but let me give you an idea of uh, of definition. So the uh, the D in disc, we'll just take driver and just bomb it, yep. go find it because they just no, love the not, I'm
1: not, yeah it's funny these days because i'm not playing for any reason i would hit a driver because it's fun <laughs> but any time that it actually counts for anything i'm not hitting a driver on I'd, I'd hit a driver on three west more than i would on 15 vic I've, i mean i've hit it a few times but like in pennant or something like that i would typically probably just hit it a four iron
0: or a five iron and kind of knock it down there and wedge mm-hmm. it on. All right. So we've so oh, we've I'm pretty got <laughs> like when it comes but to yeah, cars. okay. Yeah. By by definition. So driver D is, is driver. Yeah. <laughs> the eye personality looks to you know, just hit one into the middle of the fairway, probably three wood, maybe long iron. The steady personality uses whatever the caddy tells them because they're just aiming to please, and then the conscientious personality studies the art book for 20 minutes <laughs> and I am reading verbatim calculates the wind and uses the right club to be hundred and twenty three yards out and then they hit a stock pitching wedge in which one relates more to how? Ha- so you're playing pennant it's matches square it's, it's more the last it's Vic.
1: more the last well okay matches square it's more the last one i'm just not ta- i'm just not studying it for 20 minutes
0: <laughs> yes okay yeah. so you, you won't get a, you won't get timed out but you'll uh no. But, but but you want to know every number. But yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Look on that note, Michael. I'll um, I'll let you go after my poor man's attempt at psychology uh, 101. Um, very good. thanks to our guest, Mike Cocking from OCM. Thank you, Phil. Very enjoyable. Um, I encourage everyone to check out ocm.golf ocm.golf, uh, and then golfrenderings.com.au because there is some outstanding work and you're going to see a lot more of it. Remember to hit the subscribe button on the Tenuous Links podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and keep an eye out for Golf Barons on KO Sports in Australia and on Amazon Prime in the USA and in the UK. And until next time, Barons, add some swagger to your swing.